Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. All right, everybody, welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. It is Wednesday, which means it's time for another episode where we do a deep dive into a topic. I am Luke, I'm your host, and I'll be taking you on this adventure today. Just like always, if you're enjoying the show, please tell your friends, please spread the word. You can always go on to any platform you're on. Please give me that five-star rating. Helps my show out immensely, and I greatly, greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, you can always reach out through StolenReality.com underneath the contacts page, and you can also just get a hold of me directly at Luke at StolenReality.com. Also, at the end of each episode, I put a little Q&A on the Spotify app. So if you're listening on the Spotify app, there will be a little questionnaire, and you can always go in and answer that and tell me your feedback and what you think about the episode. All right, let's get into it today. So I've been listening to recently a very, very long, 42-hour-long, actually, lecture series from an old radio show by a man named William Cooper. I will at some point do an episode over William Cooper and about the series that I'm listening to. If you don't know who William Cooper was, he was kind of one of the um, original fathers of conspiracy theory. He had a radio show that ran for a very, very long time, over a decade, and he also had a couple books that he wrote and published, and he was very big on originally the UFO scene, but then he got much more into the occult and into government conspiracies and all sorts of things, to the point where at the end of his life, he actually called 9-11 about two months before it happened, and coincidentally, right after it happened, they went to his house and a bunch of people shot him up. So it's a very interesting story, but I watched a documentary about him a little while ago. I'd, I'd heard his name before in conspiracy circles and everything for for a very long time and his book behold a pale horse um, but I had never really known anything about him so I watched a documentary on him called the hour of the time which is the name of his radio show and it was really interesting and got me interested in him and what he was all about so I will like I said do a um, episode about him when I'm done with this very long drawn out uh, periodic radio show that I'm listening to. See, I, I do all the research and listen to these 42-hour shows so that you guys don't have to, so I can condense them for you. But in that documentary that I watched about him, it had mentioned his segment of his radio show he did called Mystery Babylon. And Mystery Babylon is where William Cooper took all the information that he had gathered over 23 years of research and um, with this network of people that he had built where they supposedly infiltrated all these secret societies. And he did a step-by-step 42-hour lecture from the beginning of the ancient occultic religions of Babylon all the way up to modern-day Freemasonry and the Illuminati and all the presidents and famous people that are involved in it and the Scottish Rite and, and what they um, truly believe and who they are and how he believed that they were controlling the world through a lot of different means. Like I said, I'll get into that at some point. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm mentioning all these secret societies and occultic practices and everything, that's totally fine because um, I will do a deep dive into it when I'm done with this series that I'm listening to. I'm about halfway through, I'm about 20 hours in, and it's a lot of 
names and dates it's it's really interesting but it's a lot to it's a lot to push through i really got through about the first 10 hours really fast and then the last 10 hours i've been through has been kind of kind of rough and i still got a long ways to go but of course he makes a lot of really interesting points now i don't agree with everything that he says and if you already have your own opinions about william cooper and who he is that's that's totally fine we'll do an episode on him later but that's not really what i'm talking about today how this leads into what we're talking about today is the way that he started this whole um, series, his whole Mystery Babylon series. The very first episode, he does a recap of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. And he claims that Stanley Kubrick was a Freemason, and that this movie was his way of showing all of their beliefs and their true understanding of the world and their plans for the future, essentially. So that got me pretty interested in it, and about two nights ago, I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey for the first time. And I can't say that I disagree with what he was saying. So if you are familiar at all with the occult or with the symbology that's wrapped up in all of these secret societies, um, this movie is just rife with it, and it is very hard to ignore if you know what you're looking at. So that got me really interested in Stanley Kubrick, and I said, okay, who was this this director that he claims was a Freemason? And, you know, I, I know who Stanley Kubrick is because of his movies and The Shining and everything, but I, that's about all I knew about him is that he's a great director. So I started looking into Stanley Kubrick a little bit, and that's when I was like, okay, there's something here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do an episode about this. So I've spent the last 24 hours of sleepless nights just really deep diving into this. I even woke up at 4 o'clock this morning to keep looking into things, which is why this episode is coming out a little bit later than it normally does today, because it is Wednesday currently, and I just finished up my research on it, and uh, I'm recording it at 9 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, so you guys will probably get it sometime around noon today. But I found a lot of very interesting things about Stanley Kubrick, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing this episode. And so how this is going to go today is I'm going to give you a quick little brief backstory on who he is, and then we're going to go through a couple of his movies and the conspiracy theories and the ideas around it, starting with 2001 A Space Odyssey and leading all the way up to his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, which is wrapped up in symbology around secret cults and societies, um, and it, he was actually killed or maybe killed, maybe died of natural causes about six days after its initial release. So a lot of interesting things around him, all the way up to government conspiracies and faking moon landings and all sorts of stuff. So we're gonna jump down some pretty fun roads today. So let's get started. So first of all, a little backstory on Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick was an American film director who was born in the Bronx on July 26, 1928. He went to William Taft High School from 1941 to 45, and he got what's called average grades, but when I actually looked into his grades, it looked more like a 67% average, so below average grades. He wasn't the best student, and he spent a lot of time skipping class and watching films. He just loved film. So after school, he started self-teaching himself how to make films and do photography, and he worked as a photographer for Look Magazine in the late 40s and early 50s. From there, he started getting into filmmaking, and he started making short films. After that, he moved on to making full-length feature films, and turned out he was very, very good at that as well. And he is now regarded as one of the best filmmakers of all time for, for various reasons. He was a genius when it came to filmmaking. 
even though he had such a long career and was so talented at what he did, he only made 13 full-length films and three short films throughout his life, which for that long of a career and for that successful of a director is a pretty small amount. But the time and dedication he put into each project is what led to them being the projects that they were. And he put a lot of time and thought and energy into every single project that he did. He was kind of the uh, Leonard Cohen of filmmaking. You know, I've, I've heard that Leonard Cohen would spend a month writing one line of his song because it meant so much to him. And that portrayed in his music. Well, the same thing kind of applies to Stanley Kubrick. So like I said, he was one of the most well-respected and, and well-known filmmakers of all time. And even though he had a short list of films, I'm sure that you've heard of most of, if not all of them. So his filmography of his feature films goes in order from 1952 to 1999. Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and then finally, Eyes Wide Shut. So I would be surprised if anybody listening to this hasn't seen at least one of those films, if not multiple of them. And if you haven't, you really should, because they really are all amazing films. There's a reason why he's in such a high regard. So of course we'll be getting into these films in just a second, but back to him as a person. So he was kind of a free thinker, obviously, and uh, kind of liked to do his own thing. So he butted heads a lot with people in Hollywood. So in 1961, he actually moved over to the UK, where he spent the most of the rest of his life in a place called Childwickberry Manor with his wife, Christine. Or maybe Christine. It's spelled kind of weird, but I believe it's Christine. This gave Stanley Kubrick kind of a unique position in Hollywood where he was able to work from home and have a complete control over all of his projects, but he still had the budget and funding from Hollywood. So it gave him the opportunity to make these big, amazing projects that we have come to know and love without as much oversight as a lot of people who worked directly in Hollywood. And that's where he lived until his death by heart attack on March 7th, 1999. So that's obviously a very, very brief description of this man's life. You know, he obviously lived a lot more life outside of those few key points I gave you there. But we need to get into the real meat of everything today. So I'm going to start off with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now when I go through this movie, I'm going to give you some ideas that William Cooper in his Mystery Babylon series talks about. And then I'm going to give you also some of my own ideas but these don't necessarily depict Stanley Kubrick's ideas when he was making the film. At the very end of the show today, I'm going to talk about his personal, religious, and philosophical, and political views. Um, and they may or may not line up with the ideas that I'm, I'm talking about in this movie. I think they do, which is why I'm doing this. But I can't speak for him. I would love to talk to him, but he's dead, so unfortunately I can't do that. So let's talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, if you haven't seen this before, then after today's talk, you should definitely go watch it and look for the things I'm talking about. And if you have seen it, then after today's talk, you should go and re-watch it and look for the things that I'm talking about. Because watching it as just this sci-fi epic about these people going into space and having trouble with their computer is one thing. But watching it kind of with a fresh set of eyes and seeing all the symbology behind it and seeing everything that I think is really happening in the movie that Stanley Kubrick was trying to portray and get across, 
um, is, is two completely different movies. And that's really how a lot of these things when it comes to secret societies and sects work. We have the esoteric part, which is the inner sanctum that they keep to themselves and they spread messages among themselves and keep everything secretive within their order. And then they have the exoteric part and the part that they show other people. And that ties into so many different things that ties into how religions work that ties into how the secret societies work how the government works everything again i'll get into that much much more at a later time when i do a episode on freemasonry and the scottish rite and secret societies in general but for now you don't really need to know too much about that all you need to know is that symbology is very 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 important it's important in everyday life and it is all around us all the time and there's a reason why we see things repetitively all over the world. There's a reason why there's an obelisk in the middle of Washington, D.C., and there's the same obelisk in the middle of the Vatican on top of a big giant sun. There's a reason for all of these different things, and you can believe that they're important or not. It doesn't really matter because the people that are in control of the world and the people that own everything believe that they're important and they put them into everything and you'll you'll see this in all the major financial institutions and all the major government institutions and flags around the world and every revolution that's ever happened you'll see the same symbology the same hand signals the same representation of the sun and of the moon and of the phallic obelisk and everything else that we're going to get into a little bit and that i'll be getting into in much much more detail on another episode so 2001 A Space Odyssey is separated into different parts, kind of different chapters in the movie. And if you don't really know what you're looking at, it's kind of confusing. It doesn't really make sense. I mean, the overall arching theme of the movie and the idea behind the movie is that a couple astronauts go up into space and they have a computer system named HAL that kind of goes rogue and tries to kill them. Like, that's the, that's the exoteric idea of it. That's the thing that everybody talks about when they watch the movie um, other than the great directing and all the amazing camera work that was way ahead of its time and everything else but that's the plot of the movie is that these astronauts went out there to investigate something strange in space and they get attacked by their computer but in reality that's kind of like a separate movie inside of a movie because the very beginning of the movie and then the second part and then the very end of the movie since it's separated into four parts, kind of tell their own story. And it's dramatically different than what we see in the spaceship scenes. Now, the movie itself, just as far as a movie goes, is really amazing. I mean, it's a very long movie. It's like over two and a half hours long, and it only has about 40 minutes of dialogue, and the rest of it is silence, and it's atmosphere, and it's just music, and it's emotion, and it's really really well done movie it's gripping it doesn't feel like you know over two and a half hours to watch but it was done that way on purpose and um, stanley kubrick talks about that in his interviews and why he did it that way and how powerful that is and that uh, emotion and religion and spirituality is people's driving force from the beginning of time and that he used that in that way in the movie so what's so weird about this movie, about these uh, guys going up into space and, you know, fighting with their computer? Well, let's start with the very beginning. 
So the beginning of the movie starts off with the words, the dawn of man coming up. And you see the sun come up, and then there's these monkeys hanging out around a watering hole. And they're kind of fighting off with the other monkeys, but it's not too violent or anything. They're all kind of yelling at each other. And there's this kind of peaceful area down there. And they're eating vegetables and, and plants. They're obviously vegetarians at the time because there's not really any killing going on until this leopard jumps on top of one of them and kills one of them, and they all run away from it. After that, it shows them kind of huddled up in a cave going to sleep, but they're all very scared, of course, at the time because they're living in this treacherous, crazy world. And the sun goes down on, on kind of the first day of the dawn of man. Well, they wake up in the morning, and there's this giant obelisk and if you don't know what an obelisk is it is a big rectangle of metal essentially so they wake up in the middle of this uh, sahara type desert scene and there's this giant black rectangle of some sort of metal or stone sticking up out of the ground it's obviously very out of place from everything else up to that point in the film. And it's obviously very out of place for these ape men that see it and are totally scared about it. And of course, they're making monkey noises and dancing around it and yelling at it until one of them gets close enough to it that he reaches out and touches it. And as he touches it, the music you know, shows you that there's something dramatic happening and a sunrise comes up over the obelisk that we'll talk about in a minute. And that's kind of the end of that scene. Well, in the next scene, we see the monkey who had reached out and touched this thing go and find a skeleton. And when he finds a skeleton of one of these wild boars that have been walking around in the, in the same area, he picks up one of the bones from it and he starts kind of hit the other bones with it. And he sees that he can use it as something. He sees that he can use a tool. And eventually he starts hitting things harder and hitting it harder. And then he crushes the skull of the skeleton. And it flashes to scenes of these wild boars dropping dead. The next scene, we see all these monkeys eating meat and eating off of these wild boars that they've obviously killed and becoming carnivorous. And from there, we see them around the watering hole again. And when rival tribes of these early ape men come up to them instead of just yelling at them and yelling them off like they had earlier in the movie they actually take these clubs and they beat one of them to death after that they take the bone and they throw it up into the air and the camera zooms in on it and it turns into a spaceship in the middle of space and we jump thousands of years into the future so that seems pretty out of place for a movie about space travel right well let's break it down a bunch but before we do quick little side note on freemasonry because the whole idea that I'm getting into is the possibility that Stanley Kubrick was a Freemason and that he was showing aspects of Freemasonry in this film. Now, I'm not necessarily saying for sure that Stanley Kubrick was a Freemason. That's just the ideas that we're exploring today. I don't make any claims to know anything 100%. This show's just about exploring ideas and presenting what I find. So according to William Cooper... One of the staples of Freemasonry and the Illuminati and Skull and Bone Society and all of these different secret societies that are all really just one and the same in an extension of ancient Babylonian religions 
is that they believe the Bible to an extent, but they believe it in a different way. They believe that we were kind of held captive in the Garden of Eden by an unjust and jealous God who didn't want us to be as smart as him, and that we were given the gift of knowledge and of intellect by Satan, by Lucifer, who they see as the Redeemer. By using our intellect, we can essentially become God. Just like in the Bible when it says, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So essentially they believe that by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from getting this divine knowledge from the serpent, we were allowed the... Um, idea of intellect to come into our bodies and that because of that we became godlike and by using the intellect we are able to grow and evolve and become gods essentially. So they think that the god of the Bible in the Garden of Eden is actually the bad guy because he didn't want us to do that. He didn't want us to be as powerful as him and as powerful as the angels. He was kind of holding us back. And so instead, they worship the serpent and they worship the sun. That's where we get all the sun-worshipping cults that come through. But it's not really them worshiping the serpent and the sun because that's the, again, exoteric side of it. That's the side that's shown to the masses and to the religions. The esoteric side of it is that the sun and the serpent really represent our intellect. So what they're really worshiping is this idea of intellect and this gift that we were given to be able to grow and evolve and become gods. So, that's a quick little side note about supposedly what these secret societies believe, according to William Cooper, and, and actually according to a lot of people's research, I think that is what they believe. But it's obviously in complete contradiction to the Christian Judeo um, ideology and the religion, and I'll get much, much more into that as I get into a, a secret society series at some point. But let's go back to this opening scene of 2001 A Space Odyssey. So the very, very first thing that happens in the movie is it is a camera shot from out in space, which I don't know how Stanley Kubrick got a camera up in space at that time. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, he shows the, the Earth with first the moon. It first comes from behind the moon, which is very, very symbolic as the feminine energy and the goddess in a lot of these uh, old cultic religions but then from behind the moon you see the earth and on the other side of the earth you see the sun starting to rise up so again we have the sun the intellect and it just says the dawn of man so we have the beginning of man and then it goes on to show all these monkeys so of course these monkeys are early man showing that in these esoteric religions they actually believe in evolution so even though they believe in the bible in a way like i said they believe that the christian religion is a bastardization of the true religion of the true answers to what all of it means and all of the symbology and everything behind it so they believe that we evolved from apes, as modern science thinks that we did, and that we were given intellect which allowed us to evolve into humans. 
So in the movie, when we first see these apes, they're all around the watering hole and they're getting along with each other more or less and they're eating plants and there's these wild boars and stuff that are walking around them and they do have confrontations with them. Like a boar gets too close to one of the monkey's bushes that he's eating and he starts huffing and puffing at it and kind of beating his chest a little bit, but there's no actual altercation. And there's other monkeys that come around and try to, you know, get into the watering hole where this little tribe of monkeys is down there. And then same thing, they kind of huff and puff at him but there's no actual violence going on except for that leopard that takes one of them out later but he is instinctually a predator so that time in the early stages of man would be considered the garden of eden you know everything's kind of peaceful everything they need is right there in front of them they're living this kind of uh, uh, very natural early stage of life well then of course they go to sleep and they wake up to this giant obelisk so what is an obelisk to these people, to these uh, mystery religions and ancient cults and things that have been around for thousands of years? Well, just like I said that the moon represents the feminine energy and the feminine side of God and the goddess, the obelisk represents the generative force of nature and of God and of the universe because an obelisk is this big, tall, erect thing. It's very phallic. It represents male fertility and strength and again you see these things all over the place we have one in washington dc they have one in the middle of the vatican um, on top of a giant sun so now that you understand that the sun represents the intellect and actually represents lucifer we'll have different ideas about the vatican we can get into in a whole different episode because uh, they are a continuation of these same mystery schools and ancient babylonian religions in a lot of ways but these monkeys wake up to this obelisk and this generative force of nature and of the universe and of what they see as the true God, and they walk up and touch it. And that represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and these monkeys coming up and touching this obelisk. Now, everything I've set up to this point, these are ideas that came from William Cooper from his, his Mystery Babylon series. I agree with him up to this point. Like I said, there's some things in that in that show that I don't necessarily agree with, but I do agree with um, all the conclusions he's drawn about a lot of those things. But those ideas come from him and not me personally. So you have the monkeys that have now touched this obelisk and eaten from the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge. And in the Bible, it was given to them by the serpent. Um, and in this, it just kind of appears out of nowhere. And later when we get on to Stanley Kubrick's own ideas about philosophy and about the universe, um, I'll kind of touch back on that about what he might have represented from that. But again, the serpent in these esoteric cultures ideas isn't necessarily actually a snake. It's representative of intellect. It's representative of a higher power and something um, that we can tap into kind of, but not necessarily this physical thing that's crawling around the ground and getting up into trees. So then what's the next thing that happens? Well, this monkey that touched this obelisk and was given this, this gift of knowledge went out and found the skeleton of one of these boars. And he picks up one of the bones and starts to see that he can use it as a tool. So now he's using his intellect. And what does he do with it? Well, <laughs> what do we always do with our intellect? He starts to be destructive. He starts to beat on the skeleton with it and sees that he can crush its skull. And from that, he learns that he can go out and kill 
these boars and then start to eat them. And so that's the fall of man right there, right? We went from this peaceful Garden of Eden where everything is like kind of copacetic and even though there's fear and everything in there, which is a little bit different from the Bible, but even though there's um, a little bit of fear and there are predators and stuff, they're still living in a very naturalistic way and just kind of living off the land of what's provided for them. But once they learn to use tools, now all of a sudden they can start to dominate. So they pick up these, these bones and they start killing off other creatures and eating them. Going back really quick because I forgot this. When they touch the obelisk, I had mentioned this earlier, when they touch the obelisk, it shows a camera shot from the very bottom of the obelisk looking up. And as it does, the sun is rising past the obelisk. So again, we have that same idea that the sun or the intellect is starting to rise past the obelisk into these these ape men. They're gaining their intellect. And if this if this sounds kind of crazy, guys, for one thing, it you know, it is kind of crazy. All this stuff is kind of crazy, but it is very representative. And there's a reason why all these things get put in there. Like I said, Stanley Kubrick spent years and years making these movies. These things didn't happen chance. And when you're cutting together a movie and you're directing all this, you have intent behind everything that you do. So there's a reason why this sun crests over in this kind of half sun phase as it's coming up, like we see time and time again, and all this symbology over this obelisk as it's coming up. It represents the rise of the intellect of man or of early man or of these apes in, in this scenario. So after these apes start killing off the animals around them and start eating them and becoming carnivorous and, and dominant upon the earth, what do they do next? Well, they're down by the watering hole and this other tribe of early man, this other tribe of apes comes down to use the watering hole and they take this bone and they beat them to death. Now, William Cooper equates this to Cain and Abel and that one of them slew the other one, right? It was the first murder that ever happened. And that's what happens in this scenario is these monkeys find out that they can use these bones and beat the shit out of each other. And they, um, they do, they, they kill each other so that they can be dominant and have the resources that they want over the other apes. And then they take this bone and they throw it up into the air and it zooms into it and then it turns into this giant phallic looking spaceship that's up in space in the year 2001, which is way into the future then. Obviously, we're a little past that now and maybe we haven't got quite that far into space. I think we probably have, but um, we, we see this spaceship as it transitions into it. So another little side note about these secret societies and Freemasonry and all these Babylonian religions, which have continued on for the last 6,000 years and really control the world in a lot of ways. According to William Cooper, the idea, the whole idea of these guys is that man you know, is a dominant species and became a dominant species because of this gift from the serpent or this gift of intellect that was given to us and that we are still evolving and that there is a new age of man coming and there's this new evolution of man and that the ones who don't evolve, just like the monkeys down at the watering hole that didn't have the weapon, that didn't have the tools to use because they didn't receive the, the intellect by touching the obelisk, they will get killed off. And they are literally just uh, cattle to be, to be murdered because they're useless. In fact, there's a lot of writings from Freemasons and things that say those exact words, that anybody who does not choose to accept their divine right and move on to the next stage of man is worthless cattle that needs to be extinguished, essentially. 
And that kind of explains a lot of what's going on in the world right now and how things are playing out. Um, but again, we'll get into that a lot more when I actually do an episode on secret societies. I'm trying to trying to stick with Stanley Kubrick here. And that will lead into what the rest of this movie actually means, in my opinion and in William Cooper's opinion, actually. So that is the whole beginning sequence. So sounds pretty out of place for a space movie, right? Well, so now we go up onto the spaceship. So they're up on the spaceship, and there's the main character at the time, although, again, he is only the main character for this part, which is very disjointed from the middle of the movie. But this main character is up on the spaceship, and he's meeting with people from uh, a different country, I'm assuming, and it seems like maybe a Soviet country, and they're having this talk with him on the spaceship, and they're saying, well, you know, something's kind of funky going on what's going on we can't get into any communication with our people and we have uh, um, maybe there's some talks going around that maybe there's an uh, epidemic or something going on and this could affect us I need you to tell me more about it well he doesn't want to tell him anything about it and he is kind of hints at yeah there's this epidemic going on 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 your moon base because they all have moon bases at this time and you can't get into contact or go visit anybody right now everything's kind of shut down now, one little side note that happens during that conversation, and this is pure speculation and, and quite a reach on my part, but I thought it was kind of interesting, is that when he's talking to these other scientists up there, one of them is this woman, and he, he asks her about her husband and says, oh, how come your husband's not joining us? How is, do, how is he doing? And she says, he's actually down on Earth right now researching something in the Baltic Sea. Well, I thought that was kind of interesting because I just did an episode about the Baltic Sea anomaly that was found in, I think, 2011, so way after this movie was made, and we found this old ancient megalithic structure at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. So I was like, huh, did he put that in there on purpose? Did he know that maybe there was an ancient civilization in that area or that... Um, there was something that was going to get found at the bottom of the Baltic Sea at some point. But again, that's huge, wild speculation and, and most likely just a coincidence that she had mentioned the Baltic Sea at that point. But with everything else that goes on in this movie, who knows? But anyway, back to the story. So this part of the story, this chapter of the story with this man on the spaceship telling these guys that they can't go to their moon base because there's a pandemic going on is what this movie was supposedly based off of. So this movie was based off of a short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Sentinel. And in the short story, The Sentinel, um, these scientists find this thing that was left on the moon eons ago by ancient aliens. And it's tetrahedral in shape, and it's sending out signals. It has this big spherical force field around it, and it's sending out signals. And they think that it's an alien technology, and the whole short story is about them talking about that it's a technology far beyond our, our horizons and what we have, and that it might be a warning signal that was left by an uh, ancient civilization because it's sending out this beacon out into space that it, it's a warning signal that humans might develop on Earth at some point and become hostile because at the very end of the short story, we destroy it with an atomic weapon um, and 
and it stops sending the signal. So that's like warning everybody else out in space that, okay, these guys are dangerous, don't come near them. So that little tiny short story by Arthur C. Clarke is what this whole movie, 2001 Space Odyssey, was kind of built off of. That was the jumping off point. But obviously he expanded far beyond that and put a lot of his own ideals into it. So from there, we see this main character, this protagonist, who was having this talk with these uh, other um, Soviet cosmonauts up on the spaceship go down onto the moon and into an underground base on the moon and he's having a talk with all these other people in this meeting room and he's talking to them about i'm sorry that we have to fake this pandemic up here but you guys understand it's for security reasons so he starts talking with these people and he says okay so what's what's going on like what do i need to see what's happening so they take him out to this spot on this moon in this crater and they show him something that they found that has been buried for millennia for thousands of years probably millions of years i can't remember exactly how long they said it was in the movie but it's been buried for a very very long time i think it was millions of years Um, but one thing that they tell him is that they know for sure that it wasn't buried naturally that something had buried it so they take him out to this thing and guess what it is it's this giant obelisk it looks exactly like the one that the monkeys had seen it's this divine source sticking up on the moon so it's a bit of a a leap away from the original story by arthur c clark and there's a reason why he chose to use this obelisk because again it's very representative in these uh, cult factions and in things like freemasonry so this astronaut guy this uh um, scientist who's the main character of this part of the story walks up to this thing and then we get that same music the same feeling of of um excitement that happens when the monkeys walk up to it and he reaches out and touches it again the sun comes over it and boom that's the end of that whole part of the movie feels very disjointed again and then all of a sudden it jumps into 20 years later on another spaceship and this is where we get into the meat of the, the movie and what most people recognize as the movie, the story of these astronauts fighting against this kind of AI that goes rogue. So these astronauts, there's two of them on this ship, and then there's three of them that are in hypersleep. So they've been um, hibernating, essentially, and they're heading out to Jupiter. And it turns out that this obelisk that's on the moon has been sending signals out to Jupiter. Now, these these uh, astronauts don't necessarily know that at this time on the ship. All they know is that they've been told to go out to Jupiter to, to do some studies. And it's kind of a secretive mission, and they don't really understand why. Now, at the same time, there's this computer system, and it's state-of-the-art. I think it was developed in 1991, according to the movie, and this is 1999. So it's, it's fairly new, but it's a AI system. It's completely intelligent. Now, it's really interesting watching this movie nowadays because I've been talking a lot about AI lately and the way that they portray this AI system and the questions around it and uh, the things they're talking about. In fact, they give an interview with a, a news reporter from the space station on, on one of the parts and he's asking about this AI system. Every conversation that they're having about it sounds exactly what I've been talking about right now, where this reporter's like, so it's not... 
it seems to show emotion, but it's not really alive, right? It's just programmed to replicate the way that we talk and replicate our language. And it's it's just it's really, really interesting because um, Stanley Kubrick, who developed the idea of this AI, did this back in 1967, probably filmed it in 1966, but it came out in 1967. And it is exactly the AI large language learning models that I've been talking about recently right now um and it's so it's either either he had some inside knowledge or he was just a really good uh prophetic thinker and and could see what was coming but anyway this ai model is um runs their whole ship you know it's just like we've seen a thousand times since then i think there was kind of a he was obviously a um a trendsetter when it came to science fiction um stanley kubrick was so we see this all the time. It's very commonplace to us now that we have this AI system that runs the spaceship and you can talk to it and everything. But this AI system that they have is called HAL 9000. Now, the, the number 9000 and the number 9 is very um, important in symbology for a lot of different reasons that I don't need to get into right now. But that's, that's really all we get from the 9000 part of his name. But what's interesting that um, William Cooper brings up is the name HAL itself. So I don't think in the movie they explain why it's named HAL. I'm sure it's an acronym for something. But William Cooper brings up the fact that if you take HAL, H-A-L, and you simply move each letter one direction to the right down the alphabet, what do you have? IBM. Well, IBM at the time was the biggest forefront runner of all computer technologies. And, you know, I, I looked up IBM. They were founded in 1912, so they've been around for a long time. Obviously, they weren't uh, necessarily making computers at that time, but they were the forefront runner in 1966, 1967 when this movie was made. So that's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, you could, you could say that that's a coincidence, but Again, symbology and numerology and stuff are very, very important to secret societies. And I believe that there is a reason why um, things are coded like that. And even if it doesn't have to be something nefarious, you could say, well, they were the forefront runner and that was a computer. So obviously he's going to kind of name it after it. And maybe that's the case. But I think it plays into it a little more than that as we go forward. So the next part of the movie, this this chapter of the movie about them being on the spaceship plays out like a lot of the science fiction movies that we know today where they're on the ship and the computer goes rogue. So essentially what happens is that this HAL, this computer system, says that it's infallible. Like they talk about it or talk to it and talk about it all the time and it says that it's never made an error and that it can't uh, make an error that is perfect. Well, it says that there's something wrong with one of their pieces of equipment. And when they go and check it, there's nothing wrong with it. So they bring this up to it and they say, well, Hal, uh, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong. It looks like you might have made a mistake. How do you account for these discrepancies? And it says, there's no way I made a mistake. If there's a mistake, the mistake must have been human error because I don't make mistakes. And then they realize, oh, we might have a problem on our hand. This thing's getting kind of an attitude. We need to shut it down. Well, it finds out that they want to shut it down, it tries to kill them. So, we can look at this part of the movie in a few different ways. One is it just is a, a great science fiction story, and it's kind of the precursor to all these movies we've seen since then with the rogue AI, and, um, you know, it's just a cool idea that Stanley Kubrick came up with. Or we can take William Cooper's idea, and William Cooper's idea is that it represents um, this great overcoming 
of man that man has to get past and that someday we will create an AI that's too powerful for us and only those who are able to adjust and adapt to this new world that we're creating will survive. And, uh, you know, we see that playing out in real time right now. So that's kind of uh, prophetic, depending on how the world turns out in the next six months with all this crazy AI stuff that's going on. You know, if you want to hear more about that, listen to my last What a Week episode. We have a lot of prominent um, scientists and stuff coming out and saying we need to halt AI right now because it's getting really bad really fast. We could really screw ourselves over if these things get too powerful. So that's kind of William Cooper's idea is that that's what this is. It's a very uh, literal sense that we will develop something like this at some point and it will try to take over. I have a little bit of a different idea about what this part of the movie represents. So as I said earlier, these secret societies and the Freemasons, which we're trying to get to the bottom of if if, uh, Stanley Kubrick was a part of, see God as the bad guy, right? As this unjust and self-righteous asshole, essentially, that tried to hold us down. And Satan, the Redeemer, Lucifer, came and gave us um, intellect through this knowledge of good and evil, or in this story, the obelisk, to, to allow us to kind of evolve past that. So in my mind, if that's the case, and, and you know, I'm not saying that this is what I believe, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, I'm saying that this is what the people in power believe because because they do, and I'll get into that later. But anyway, um, I think that the computer system would represent God because, for one, he's the enemy. He's the bad guy. And for two, you have this thing that is supposedly perfect, that's infallible. And then when it makes a mistake, what does it do? It turns against its its creators, or in the case of God, turns against its creation because it doesn't want to be overthrown. So, of course, it would have a uh, agenda to try to kind of hold them down, like these esoteric religions believe happened in the Garden of Eden. So, after this HAL computer system finds out that they want to shut it down, he says to them, I can't let you do that because this mission and this thing that I'm doing is too important to me. And so it's kind of, to me, um, you know, if we're going by the guidelines of, of what the Freemasons supposedly believe, according to William Cooper, that plays in a lot better and sounds a lot more closely related that just like in the Garden of Eden, man gained the knowledge of good and evil and gained wisdom and God comes through and says what? Um, he is now eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he has become like us and now he must not eat from the tree of life and live forever because according to these ancient religions again that would make us too powerful and we'd be a threat to god so just like the computer system says i can't let you shut me down this project that we're on is too important to me it's kind of the same thing god says i can't let you live forever now that you have the knowledge that i have because this little project of creation of earth that i've made is too important to me i can't let you threaten it Again, this isn't necessarily what I believe. This is just, um, you know, what's been been pieced together by people looking into these uh, esoteric religions and these occult factions that have been around for thousands of years um, have came up with. So then in that part of the movie, the AI, of course, uh, goes rogue and it ends up killing everybody. So the three people in hypersleep, pretty easy for him. He just shuts them down. 
the one of the other astronauts that's awake goes out to look at something, I think to, to fix something on the outside or something like that. I can't remember. But anyway, he shoots him off into space. And then our remaining guy, our remaining hero, um, sees him do this and has to fight against him. And it's very anticlimactic. It's not like you'd see in a movie nowadays where there's things blowing up and it's trying to like rip his head off or anything like that. It's this very kind of long, drawn-out um, section of the movie where he's having a conversation with it, really, about how he needs to shut it down. And he goes in and he just kind of starts to turn it off. And the thing is like... I can feel you turning me off. You're killing me. Like, stop this. And, um, you know, it's really good because of the way that it's made and directed, but it's not, it doesn't seem like the main point of the movie for sure. Um, even though that's, again, what this movie's really remembered as is this science fiction movie about people fighting this rogue AI, but that's not the point of this movie as far as I'm concerned. So according to Will Cooper, Bill Cooper, William Cooper, whatever. According to Mr. Cooper, who did the Mystery Babylon series, he says that what this represents is that, um, you know, this idea that these secret societies have that man needs to evolve and the ones that don't evolve, just like those monkeys by the pond, the ones that didn't evolve the intellect are going to die off. Well, on the spaceship, everybody dies except for this one righteous man who was able to come and shut it down and overcome this big tribulation, overcome this AI system, or in my opinion, overcome God, essentially. And so after he shuts this thing down, they get right close to orbit to Jupiter, where they've been going this whole time, and a TV screen pops up. And it says, hey, this is whatever commander from Earth. We didn't tell you this beforehand because, um, you know, for political reasons or whatever, we didn't. We wanted to keep it a secret. But now that you guys are there and everybody's awake because you didn't assume that the computer was going to try to kill everybody, we can tell you what's really going on. We found an obelisk on the moon that had been buried for millennia and it has been sending signals up to Jupiter and you guys are actually there to check it out. So that's the first time that our now protagonist, our now main character, sees, uh, finds out what's going on and finds out what his mission was actually about. And that's the end of that section. That's the end of the whole like mid meaty part of the movie right there. And then it cuts to the last section, which is called Jupiter and beyond the infinite. And it gets kind of (laughs) crazy. And if you were watching this, just thinking you were watching a sci-fi movie, it is so disjointed. It's so like, what the fuck is going on? And, you know, most people who watch this and uh, put this movie in high regards say that it's just this this beautiful creative outlet that Stanley Kubrick came up with. And it's this really cool representation of the universe and stuff like that. But there's a lot going on in this last section. So this section starts out with it showing Jupiter and this giant black obelisk, the same obelisk that we saw on the moon, the same obelisk that popped up around these monkeys is orbiting around Jupiter and flying around it. And then all hell breaks loose. It gets just really crazy all of a sudden. Shows the main character's face and he looks terrified. And this 
stream of colored lights is flying in his face. And this is like a 20 minute ending scene. So I was showing my buddy this because I was talking to him about it yesterday after I watched this movie. And I'm like, man, this is like a long drawn out scene. It's like five minutes of this. And then when I actually watched it with him, I was like, oh, wow, this is like 20 minutes of this. It's very long, but it's very hypnotic. Um, obviously, time distorted me enough. And you watch it at the end of this two and a half hour movie. Um, but it's so engaging and it's so hypnotic. And I think it's done that way on purpose and for a reason. Um, but it really just sucks you into it. So he's sitting there and it's flashing, showing his face looking kind of just like astounded and terrified. And then it's showing all these colorful lights just flying at the camera for like minutes straight, just minutes, minutes, minutes. And then from there, it starts cutting into other really weird and psychedelic looking things. So uh, the best way I can describe it, you, I mean, you should just go on YouTube and, and look up the the Beyond or Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite um, or the ending of 2001: Space Odyssey because it's it's really weird. But anyway, the best way I can describe it is if you took like oil and dropped it into water, how it kind of spreads out, you know. Well, it's that, but with neon colors. And I would imagine that's kind of how he made this scene. But it's a combination of lights flying at the camera and all these different kind of geometric shapes flying at the camera and all these different colors. And then these kind of neon light um, metamorphic fractal images and stuff that are kind of flowing around and growing. There's two parts in it that caught my eye. And one of them these liquid looking patterns look just like Satan and or you know, our modern day depiction of Satan. And when I was showing my buddy this scene yesterday, I actually was going to mention that to him. And as soon as he saw it, he goes, that's Satan. Now, depending on how this was made by Stanley Kubrick, if he was like dropping water um, into oil or something like that, and then playing lights behind it, which kind of looks like maybe how he made it, uh, it might just be coincidence because that might be kind of hard to replicate, but I don't know. Um, and then also there was one part where it looked exactly like it, it formed as this liquid was kind of moving around. It formed into the exact look of what we would call a modern day like gray alien. And when I first saw that, I actually paused the movie and I was like, huh, am I reaching at straws here? But then right where that alien's eye is, it transforms their the camera changes and it shows the main character's eye and i was like okay that looks like it was done on purpose but when i showed this clip yesterday to my friend that wasn't in there i searched like frame by frame because i wanted to show that to him and that wasn't in there so i don't know if i watched a director's cut or the one that I was seeing online, it was edited or something like that. Because I watched the full movie and I was just showing him a clip off YouTube. But that that piece was missing. So I don't know if that was just cut for time constraints or what. Again, I could be reaching for straws with those two things. Um, because they could just be the way that this liquid was moving when he, when he made the movie. But it looks like Satan and it looks like a gray alien. And w later when I talk about Stanley Kubrick's own words when he talks about this movie um, I think it was done on purpose because he kind of goes down that route a little bit but we see all these images all these flashes of lights and everything and then we see this big like plane almost like a road going through space of all these flashing lights um, they kind of like level out and on top of them there is five triangles 
And now I was I went into this movie looking for symbology because that's that's why I was watching it. So as soon as I saw five, I was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why it's not seven because seven is a, a much more uh, esoteric number and used a lot. Well, it starts with those five glowing um, diamond triangle things floating above these things and flashing lights. And then two more come into the side and show seven. When I mentioned this to my buddy, my buddy is, um, you know, in, into a lot of stuff as well. But I mentioned it to him and I was like, I was surprised at first that it wasn't seven until a seven came in. He goes, well, in a lot of esoteric cultures, five represents man, seven represents God. So again, that goes into play, just like everything we've been talking about. We have these five symbolic images of, of these diamonds floating above this cosmic uh, dispersal of colors and and light and this man this floating five then becomes god right because the intellect brings him into god as these two other ones come in from the side and remember if it sounds like i'm reaching for things here and just making some bullshit up for one maybe i am because i can't claim that anything i say is 100 percent accurate because i can't talk to stanley kubrick because he's dead but we got to remember that everything that was put in that movie, every single frame was chosen to be put into that movie. It didn't just happen into there, right? These weren't just happenstance things. So there's a reason behind all of it. And when we plot all these things together, it looks like a pretty, uh, it, it looks pretty interesting. So after all that, it starts showing in like Technicolor and all these really like um, very red and green and blue huge screens. It starts showing pictures of landscape. And I would imagine that anybody who's watching it and not looking for symbology would say, well, that must be showing Jupiter because they were going out to Jupiter. Um, but what I found was interesting is the very first thing it showed was the Grand Canyon. And I talked about some ancient artifacts in my Uparts uh, episode a little while ago. And the Grand Canyon is a spot where supposedly people have found a lot of Egyptian relics and artifacts. And it shows that there was a worldwide civilization at some point. Or, I mean, that's one of the things it could show. Um, but that there was an ancient civilization of very advanced people at some point who are able to traverse the world. And there's a lot of stories and a lot of evidence of them finding Egyptian artifacts and mummies and hieroglyphs and all sorts of stuff in the Grand Canyon uh, early in like the 1900s and in the late 1800s. So I thought it was very interesting that that was the first place that it showed when he was showing this. Because again, if we're looking for symbology, there's a reason why everything got put into this movie and with everything else that's playing out about, um, you know, ancient man and the rise of intellect and everything, it would be very fitting that he would show an area like that that would uh, show that man, you know, had these ancient technologies and were given this, this intellect early on, kind of this, this valley of the gods. So after that, things get weird again. All of a sudden, this little space capsule that this main character is sitting in pops up in this room, in this like beautiful, big, white room with nothing but a bed in it and then some like artifacts on the walls. And now that I said that, I wish I would have looked closer at what those artifacts on the walls and stuff were because I'm sure every one of them had meaning. In fact, hold on, I'm going to Google a picture of it real quick. Yep, so here's some pictures of it I just found. And in that room, this big white room with tile lit up white floors 
which I'll talk about in just a second, um, it's very symmetrical, and there's two statues holding goblets above their head, and they look like old uh, Greek statues holding goblets, which is very representative in a lot of these ancient cultures. Again, we could have anything from, you know, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head because I just found this in live time, but it could be, you know, anything from my cup runneth over and a filling of the intellect. Um, it also is standing exactly like the Statue of Liberty, how she's holding her torch. So we have these two statues, which I'm sure are representative. And then on each side of those statues, we have pillars with goblets on top of them. And then on each side of those are paintings. And I can't zoom in enough to make out what those paintings are because uh, the, the photo gets a little grainy when I zoom in. But again, a lot of symbolism in there. I can't tell you exactly what all that symbolism means because... Uh, I'm just looking at it right now. I didn't think to look at it before, but everything gets placed for a reason. Somebody designed those sets for a reason, for sure. But anyway, so he's in this room in this little like space capsule that he's in. And the side of this space capsule, by the way, has a big old um, cross on the side of it. And this cross is the Maltese cross. The Maltese cross is usually red. This one's done in black, but it is definitely that cross, in my opinion. It looks exactly like it. Um, so we got another sign of a secret, secret uh, society, essentially, being placed into the movie. And again, all these old secret societies, all these skull and bones, and the Illuminati, and the Freemasons, and... A uh, hundred other ones I could name are all one and the same when we get down into it. They're all branches of the same religion, essentially. So our main character is in this big room. One more thing. Sorry, I'm trying not to take too many tangents, but there's a lot to this stuff. So one more thing is that um, black and white checkerboard and black and white checkered floor specifically is very symbolic in esoteric religions and in the occult and you see this in so much stuff nowadays and i'll do when i talk about my occult episode at some point i'll talk about all the um, music artists and stuff that use the symbology and everything that they do but if you look at like every music video nowadays and every album cover you're always going to see this black and white checkered floor and one of the things that that represents is duality right it's this dark and light it's this mixing of good and evil it's this uh, balance in the universe well this exact same floor is in this room that this man's in our main character has just popped up in all of a sudden but it is all white and it's illuminated it's lighting up so again it's that all the dark has come out of it, and we have this only light, this lit up white checkered floor. So he's in this room, and he sees himself across the room in a spacesuit looking back at himself, but he's much older. And then it kind of jumps camera perspectives, and he is that older man. And he looks out across the room again, and he sees himself sitting at a table, but much older again. And then this older man is sitting at this table by himself and eating. And then it jumps perspectives again. And he is sitting there eating by himself. And he knocks a glass off the table and it drops down and shatters. And I don't know exactly what that means. But I'm sure there's something behind it because there's something behind all this. And then he looks over and this bed that's sitting in the middle of the room there's another version of himself. And he's very old this time and he's on his deathbed. And then it jumps into the perspective of being that man 
And he looks down at his feet, and at the end of the bed, guess what has appeared? This big black obelisk. And so he reaches out, and the music starts to do that thing that it does every time we see the obelisk and and get very loud and high and, and this building of tension. And he reaches out and touches it. And then all of a sudden, he turns into a fetus. There's a fetus in a like embryonic sack sitting on the bed. And then the next scene that we see is that fetus floating through space next to the earth. So let's unpack that little little episode that just happened there. So for one, all those lights and everything flying at him, um, you know, he's, he's kind of breaking the bounds of consciousness and he's seeing all things and all universe. And it shows... A lot of it shows, um, it looks like the creation of the universe, or the Big Bang, and everything's kind of flowing from the source. But it also, in parts of it, shows this like white light that everything is emanating out of. Everything's coming out of this white light, and it's creating the universe. So we have this divine consciousness that's at the base of everything that everything's kind of flowing out of. It's a very esoteric idea. In fact, it's very uh, linked into a lot of New Age thought. It's linked into... Um, hermetic thinking. It's this idea that as opposed to this like singular God that created everything, there's a divine source that everything emanates from. It's actually pretty close to my own beliefs about God when I, when I get down to it. But um, it, it's obviously showing in this part the beginning of the universe and that everything is, is coming from this lighted up divine source that everything's spreading out from. So that, that's that part. And then it shows, again, all those uh, scenery pics of what I'm sure most people think is supposed to be Jupiter, but it's the beginning of matter. It's the beginning of form and land is being created. So he's seeing this development of everything. So his his consciousness, after he came to this obelisk, he's got this divine inspiration to be able to see everything and see how the universe really works. And then at the end of it, when he goes through his life as physical man, as this modern day man and touches this obelisk, he goes on to the next stage of evolution. He goes to become the new man, right? He starts over as a fetus and he's floating towards the earth. And what a what a weird thing, you know, if you were just to watch this movie as this like science fiction movie about a rogue AI, like how out of place is that? It just ends with this fetus floating towards earth. And that's a very like iconic scene. I'm sure you've seen pictures of that at some point, but that's what is represented here in my opinion and William Cooper's opinion in anybody who thinks about it for two seconds opinion is that after he touches this, he gains the, the knowledge to become the new man. And that's the whole ideology of these secret societies is that the new man must evolve and all others must die off. And that plays out in, in the political realm and uh, in the educational realm and everything else in our world every single day because, you know, that's where we get into the conspiracy side of things is, is their agenda behind all this happening. But when you think about the people who believe this stuff and who are involved in this stuff, then, yeah, I mean, they rule the world. They have all the money. And so they decide what happens. But anyway, again, more on that when I get into my episode about secret societies. So that is the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now I did find online a post credit scene of his friend that got shot off into space and it shows him on the moon next to another obelisk. I don't know when that was made. I didn't see that in the movie, but I also didn't watch past the credits. I didn't 
stick around after the movie to watch those. So that might have been part of it. But again, we just see that obelisk again. And, you know, it's the same representation, the sun coming up over the obelisk. And um, the same thing that we see time and time again, the rising intellect given to us by something from from outer space. Okay, so that is the first movie that we're going to go through uh, from Stanley Kubrick. Now, that took a lot longer than I thought it would, and I promise the other movies are not going to be nearly that in-depth because that was kind of the baseline to all this. Um, But right now I kind of got a choice. I could make this into a two-part episode and pick back up next week, or I can just keep on trucking on. And that's what I'm going to do because I'm not lazy, and you guys... You guys get the best from this show. So if it's getting awfully drawn out for you and you would like, you have every right to just go ahead and pause it right now and pick back up the second half later because now we're going to get into a lot more fun stuff, including faking a moon landing, um, sex cults, all (laughs) all sorts of weird stuff going on from here. So there is obviously a lot of symbology in that movie that we just went over. And it's a far cry from just a movie about a AI that went rogue. What it looks like to me is that Stanley Kubrick took this idea from the short story from Arthur C. Clarke and decided to put his own ideas about um, religion and the world and the universe around it. Now, where he got those ideas is where we really get into the question of did he come up with that on his own or did he get those ideas from somewhere else, meaning that he is part of a secret society and that he is a Freemason. And that's kind of what we're trying to dive into today. Now, in my opinion, um, I have to lean a little more towards that he was part of one of these societies. And here's why. Because nowadays, we have the internet, and we have television, and we have, um, you know, obviously he had television and made a movie, but we have much more television and radio shows and podcasts and stuff. So I know all about these these secret societies, and I know all their symbolism, and I know all their history and all this stuff, because I'm able to gather that information and look into it. I can spend hours looking into it. But Back in this time, in the early 60s, you couldn't really do that. You couldn't just Google it. So either you would have to spend hundreds of hours in a library, which is what William Cooper did, is uh, spent time looking into books and news articles. You know, he says in that Mystery Babylon series that I listened to, he says all the time, he goes, all this information, I'm not making this up. This is all public information. And you guys can all learn this for yourselves by doing your own research go down to the library. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Like, can you imagine like digging in and finding all this information about secret societies and all these connections between rich people and all these lineages and everything by going to a library? Wow. Um, But anyway, Stanley Kubrick obviously didn't have the internet in his pocket like we do nowadays. So he either spent the time to look into those things to be able to use all this symbology in his in his uh, his movie that he made, or he was part of one of these societies and knew it because of that. 
And since it is a secret society, since it is esoteric and the secrets are closely guarded and they're shown differently to the people on the outside, it would be very tough to know any of this, especially at that time, unless you were kind of on the inner circle. Because just like the movie itself, the movie itself has an esoteric side and an exoteric side. You watch the movie not knowing anything about any of this, you're like, huh, that was interesting. There was a big rock and then these monkeys killed each other and then they found a big rock on the moon and then... Um, you know, that AI went crazy and then a guy turned into a fetus. So the exoteric side is just this kind of wacky, weird sci-fi movie. And then the esoteric side is all the symbology and actual meaning behind it. So it would be very tough. I'm not saying it's impossible because I cannot claim for sure that Stanley Kubrick was a Freemason, but it would be very tough for him to be able to incorporate that symbology and know all that symbology, especially in the 60s, without having some inside knowledge. So, going on from 2001 A Space Odyssey, what happens next with Mr. Stanley Kubrick? Well, the next thing that crops up that people find interesting about him is the moon landing. So there's a theory that he was hired to help fake the moon landing. So in 2001 A Space Odyssey, obviously there's a big chunk of it where they're on the moon. And it was a very good set. It looks like we know the moon looks like today. And when did that movie come out? 1968. I think I said 1967 earlier, but it was 1968. When did we land on the moon? Supposedly 1969. So the theory goes that they hired Stanley Kubrick after seeing that movie to help them win the space race. Because at that time, obviously the Soviets were trying to get to the moon, we were trying to get to the moon, and it was very important for us to get there first so that we could kind of lay claim to it and save face in the public and all these different things. So the theory goes that we, instead of getting to the moon, that we either didn't even try or that we tried and failed to get to the moon, and they hired Stanley Kubrick to come in and shoot a fake moon landing so that we could win the space race for, you know, a lot of different reasons. Obviously, on the world stage, uh, we, want to, we want to win that competition of getting to the moon first. Now, for one thing, the set of the of the movie 2001 Space Odyssey, the moon on that, and the moon landing footage, they do look very, very similar. Um, you know, they well, they look the same because Stanley Kubrick did a really good job making the moon. So there is that. I don't personally believe this one. I don't believe that the moon landing was faked. In fact, I think that we went to the moon and found things that we didn't think we would find, which actually plays closer into his movie, like finding alien artifacts on the moon. I think that that is actually what happened and why we haven't gone back until just now, you know, recently. I talked about this last week. We're talking about going back to the moon finally. But I think that that is more likely what happened. And I've done a lot of looking into the moon, to the moon landing. And um, there's not a lot of evidence I can find showing that the moon landing was faked. Other than there is a very interesting interview with one of the astronauts. I think it was Buzz Aldrin, but it might have been Neil Armstrong. But it was one of the astronauts. And he was talking to this little girl. And she asked him about the moon landing. And says, why haven't, why haven't we gone back? And he goes, because we never went. We never went there. That's the big secret. So that's the only that's the only piece of evidence that I've seen that I'm like, oh shit, like what the hell was he talking about there? But from what I've found, there's much, much more evidence that we did go to the moon and then there was a big cover up around it. 
that we landed on the moon and they found a lot of really strange things in the craters and they destroyed the tapes afterwards and all this different stuff. So either way, there's a lot of controversy around the moon and the moon landing and I will do an episode about that at some point um, because the moon has a lot of mysteries around it, even going down to the fact of, you know, people could say that it's artificial because of all the the synchronicity between it and how it lines up with a lot of different things and where it's at to, to create life on earth and all this all this crazy stuff that we'll get into on a moon episode at some point because um, it's very interesting but let's get back to mr stanley kubrick's role in this whole thing so people obviously claim that this is what happened that he was approached by nasa and that they hired him to stage the moon landing so here's the counter argument to that so first of all so stanley kubrick did have connections in nasa he was talking with nasa but it's because supposedly he had actually hired two aerospace contractors frederick ordway and larry lang to consult him on 2001 a space odyssey so that they could use their expertise to make the scenes depicting humans landing on the moon look more realistic which is interesting because supposedly they hadn't been to the moon at that point. So how did they know? But anyway, that's the explanation for why he was talking to NASA. Because that's one of the things that people bring up. was like, why was he talking to NASA while he was doing research for his movie? You know, we could look at the other side of that as they approached him to help him or help them fake the moon landing. But you get to choose which one you believe there. Another pretty strong piece of evidence about uh, why he probably didn't fake the moon landing is because the moon landing, which was a year later, looked dramatically different than the landing in the movie. And what I mean by that is in the movie, when they come down and they touch down onto the moon, dust flies up from their feet, right? And that doesn't happen in the moon landing or videos because there's of the vacuum of space <laughs> and so it just doesn't really work like that also in the movie when they're moving around they move much more naturally they don't kind of like bounce around and float like they do in the moon landing footage because the the lack of gravity up there so if he had enough knowledge to fake the moon landing and make it all look realistic then why wouldn't he have made that into his movie Unless, of course, when he made his movie, he just didn't have that knowledge. And then when he um, was helping NASA supposedly fake the moon landing, they're like, hey, here's the things we need to incorporate to make it look more realistic. So again, you get to decide. So those are kind of some of the um, reasons of why he may not have faked the moon landing. But let's do the more fun side now and get into the evidence that he might have actually done this. So obviously, you know, the biggest thing is the conspiracy theory goes that he was talking to NASA. Um, he was approached by them. He was a supposedly asked to be a consultant, um, well, for their filming up on the moon. Not that they recreated it necessarily, but they asked him about videography and stuff since he was a prominent filmmaker at the time. So, and, you know, he put this movie out right beforehand, and then you add up all the, the, the things all the other conspiracy theories around how or why the moon landing was faked and you plug him into it, that's kind of where the story grows. But what's the fun part is all the supposed clues he left behind. So one of his other very famous movies was a little movie you might know called The Shining. So The Shining movie didn't come out until 1980, but The Shining was based obviously on the book by Stephen King. Well, Stephen King hated that movie because... Um, 
Stanley Kubrick took a lot of liberties and changed a lot of things in the movie. It didn't really follow the story quite like uh, Stephen King wanted it to. And if you watched the newest uh, addition to The Shining, which is called Dr. Sleep, the Dr. Sleep story goes a lot more into like the um, ghost side of things and the psychic vampires and everything like that. And I've never read the book, The Shining, but apparently that the Shining movie was much more about that, much more about The Shining itself than this man kind of going crazy from cabin fever. And Stanley Kubrick took it and kind of changed it and made it into this horror movie. So he definitely took a lot of liberties with the film. But the theory goes that he left a lot of clues about him faking the moon landing in that movie as kind of a confession, you know, 20-something years later, or 8, 15, 13 years later, whatever. Down the road, he, he wanted to confess a little bit about what he had done, so he put clues into it, into the, um, into the Shining movie. So th there's also, along that note, there's also this idea that people who do these kind of things put them out in plain sight and they do it for a reason and here's that reason if i come up to you and i sold you a poisoned apple and you ate it without knowing it was poisoned and you died i would have murdered you but if i have a poisoned apple and i put a big sign up that says poison apples for sale they will kill you and you come and eat it i don't have any blame right i mean depending on how you look at things, I wouldn't have any blame because you made the personal choice to eat that apple. I was just the one there holding it. So the idea is that when people in these secret societies and things like that um, do these satanic rituals or sex cults or child abductions and all these different horrible things that they supposedly do, the reason why we see those represented in media so much um, isn't just that they're just this cultural things that have happened. It's that they put them out there on purpose to show the masses what they're doing so that they can say later on, you know, like I said earlier, they think of us like cattle. So they can say later on, hey, they knew about us doing this. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any fault. It is not a sin of mine to have done this. So there's the idea that this happens in secret societies. And if you know, uh, he is a Freemason and he was part of these secret societies, could be something that he was doing, saying, yeah, I faked the moon landing. Yeah, we lied to everybody about this so that we could win the space race and, and be the first ones on the moon, supposedly, and, you know, get on the world stage with it. But I told everybody I did it. Like, they, it was the evidence was right there. They chose not to believe it. So there's the idea that he did that. So let's look into some of the reasons why people think he put these little... Uh, little hints into the Shining movie. And some of these I think is a little bit of, bit of a stretch, but they're fun. So the first one is Tang. Tang is all over in that movie. And we all know is Tang is the, the drink the astronauts took to the moon, right? So the, the first hint people say is, well, like, why did he put Tang all over the place? Why did he choose that one? And, uh, you know, that's, that's the answer is that he was saying he faked the moon landing. The second one is that when um, Jack, the main character, is typing on his typewriter and he types out all work is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. When you look at the word all, it looks like A11 or Apollo 11, which, of course, was the moon landing ship. So that's another idea that people think uh, he was hinting into it there. 
Another one that people reach for is at the very beginning of the film, Jack Nicholson's character, Jack, uh, meets with the manager of the hotel, and behind him on the wall is an American flag and a statue of an eagle. And they say that, you know, that's a nod to the lunar, to the lunar landing module that was called Eagle. The next one is those creepy-ass little twins in the movie, the Grady twins. Apparently in the in the book, it's just one girl. It's the ghostly Grady girl. But he took it and decided to make it twins. So either he just knows that twins are kind of creepy <laughs> or um, he did it supposedly to signify the failed Gemini mission by NASA. Obviously, Gemini is the twin in astrology. That's what the Gemini represents. But also, that mission was a failure, so you have these two ghostly girls, they're dead, it's a dead mission, so supposedly he used that and made that change so that he could represent that failed NASA mission. Do these sound like a little bit of a stretch, guys? Because <laughs> some of them do to me, but there are a lot of them, and you're like, oh, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, going on. The carpet in the hallway. So when that little, uh, when the little kid is riding his bike down the hallway, we all know that orange carpet. If you've seen the movie or you've seen anything to do with the movie, um, you know it's a very iconic carpet. Um, it's been been shown in a million different things, but it's that really orange carpet with those weird uh, hexagons all over it. Well, when you look at that from a bird eye view, when you look at it from the top, it looks just like the Apollo 11 launch pad. Coincidence? mayhaps but this next one's a little more blatant so danny the little boy character in the movie when he's walking down the hall and he's going towards room 237 and in this picture of him doing this he's on top of that carpet with that launch pad look all over it he's wearing a sweater and guess what the sweater is it's a sweater of a rocket that says apollo 11 usa on it it's this like hand-knitted sweater of the apollo 11 uh, rocket that he's wearing and it's very very blatant it's right in your face so there's no like ambiguity to it it is definitely <laughs> what it looks like and what it says and he's wearing this as he's walking towards room 237 so 237 also is interesting so i guess in the book the room 237 which is the room that danny walks into and there's that creepy old naked lady sitting in the tub and i think later jack goes in there and like sees her as an attractive woman but anyway when Danny's walking towards this room 237, in the book, that room is actually 217. So there's absolutely no reason for Stanley Kubrick to have changed the number of the room. It doesn't change the plot or anything, or it's not a driving force of anything in the movie. Except when we get into the conspiracy side of things, people say the reason why he changed it to 237 is to reflect the 237 miles that separate Earth from the moon. Now, that's not the exact distance, but it's pretty damn close. So Danny walks in there in his little Apollo 11 sweater, and he runs out screaming with his face all scratched up. So they say that this is alluding to the fact that the mission itself, the Apollo 11 mission, actually failed to reach the 237,000-mile uh, journey to the moon, never actually made it there, and that he faked the moon landing. So those are all the main reasons I can find that people say that he dropped hints into the Shining movie about him faking the moon landing. Uh, there might be a couple more I missed, but I'm sure they're all along those same lines. And, you know, when you when you think about it, when you listen to him, you're like, uh, you know, Tang. Okay, well, everybody drinks Tang. And you're like, well, a carpet looking like that, well, it could look like anything, you know. And so they all just seem kind of like people are grasping at straws. But then when you put them all together, you're like, huh. 
there is a lot of them in there, you know, <laughs> and maybe he was dropping a hint that he had done this. Or maybe he was being a smartass and people were saying that he helped fake the moon landing. So he's like, I'm going to mess with them and put little clues in. Or maybe it's all coincidence. Could go either way. Again, I'm just here to present facts. You guys need to make your own decisions. So, and then on top of all that, we have the confession video. We have the video of Stanley Kubrick coming out and saying that they faked the moon landing and he was approached by the president to do it. That is bullshit. <laughs> so there's a video that's been going around for a while of supposedly him um, saying that. And it, first of all, the video itself is horrendous. I don't know what college student making a project made this thing, but the way he cut it together and stuff is just, it's hard to watch. It's so dumb. It's so bad. But the guy who is in the video does look and sound a lot like Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick uh, rarely gave any interviews. He kind of kept himself out of the limelight, especially for how big of a, a person he was, which, again, kind of goes back to maybe the secret society thing. They don't like to be in the limelight, I guess, unless you're in the rap industry. But anyway, um, he this, this interview looks like him talking. Well, I found the original raw footage of that interview. And the guy who was shooting the interview um, was coaching the actor who was supposed to be playing Stanley Kubrick and telling him what to say. And at one point, he gets pissed off that the guy is not doing his role well enough and calls him Tom. And he's like, damn it, Tom, you're supposed to be doing this and saying this and blah, 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 blah. So that video is obviously fake. Stanley Kubrick did not come out and give an interview saying that he faked the moon landing. Doesn't necessarily mean he didn't do it, but if you've seen that video going around, um... I can't remember exactly when that came out. It's been around for a little while. But if you've seen that going around, it is it is definitely not real. And whoever made that was just doing a film project or doing it for, for film school or just to just to cause controversy, I guess. But that one is definitely not real. we got to chalk that one up to the bullshit pile. But the last interesting fact about The Shining, and this doesn't have anything to do with the moon landing uh, hoax, supposedly, but it does have something to do with him maybe being a Freemason, is that there's that part where Jack goes into the bar and he sits down and the bartender tells him that your money's no good here. Now, I have always seen that as being um, just like a good-hearted thing that the bartender ends up, you know, doing for him because I think the bartender, like, ends up being his dad. So he's just telling him, hey, you don't need to pay. But I did read a thing where somebody was saying that that was alluding to a cashless society, which we're moving towards very rapidly, by the way. Um, it's happening right now in real time. That's another thing that's happening that I really need to do an episode on pretty soon because that's about to affect us all. But that is another um, staple point of supposedly of these secret societies is that they want a one world government with a one world religion and they want a cashless society where everything is um, it's socialism, essentially, where everything is provided for you, but it's rented. You don't really own anything, which we're rapidly moving to in the world right now. But uh, some people say that that's what that was alluding to in that movie when he sat down and the guy goes, your money's no good here. So I don't see it that way. I think the guy was just, you know, it was his father figure and he was being nice to him, doing a nice gesture. But if Stanley Kubrick was a Freemason, it could just be another little clue getting left behind. So we've gone over 2001 A Space Odyssey and we've gone over the possible moon landing hoax and some weird things within the Shining movie that people say may prove the moon landing hoax. 
So let's go on to the next weird fact about Mr. Stanley Kubrick here. So the next strange thing in the life of Mr. Kubrick was the movie A Clockwork Orange. And this movie came out in 1971, so it was actually before The Shining. It was between The Shining and um, the 2001 A Space Odyssey. In fact, I think it was his next movie after 2001 A Space Odyssey. But if you have ever seen A Clockwork Orange, it's a trip, right? It's about these kind of street hooligans who get taken by the government and then brainwashed through torturous methods, pretty much, to try to rehabilitate them. Well, that movie was based on a book by a man named Anthony Burke. Burgess? Anthony Burgess. And Burgess worked for the British intelligence and he witnessed the CIA's MK Ultra program, which did all of this stuff. So if you don't know anything about MK Ultra, um, that's a whole other series I'll have to do at some point. But the government, this is all documented, this is all fact, this is not a conspiracy theory. The government experimented with torturing people to break their minds to try to do all sorts of things from create super soldiers to mind control to create soup, uh, sleeper cells so that they'd be able to reactivate people later on to do assassinations. They tried to just do anything they could. In fact, the whole kind of point of MK Ultra was to see what happens if we break somebody's mind and can we rebuild it afterwards. They developed LSD. That's where acid came from. If you took acid in the 50s before the big like hippie movement happened, there's a very good chance that you were part of MK Ultra. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of the very famous people that we have that are uh, musicians and artists and writers like Jack Kerouac were part of the MK Ultra program. They got their brains fried by the government and then they turned into these amazing, amazing artists afterwards. Uh, and I'll get into that at some point, the whole MK Ultra thing, um, because there's a lot of really interesting things that go along with it. It was a, a really messed up government program and they did a lot of crazy shit. Um, but anyway, he made the movie A Clockwork Orange, and it's based on a book about somebody's eyewitness testimony, essentially, who worked for the British intelligence agency about the MK Ultra program. And supposedly, in that movie, he put little clues as to where these things were taking place. So that doesn't really, you know, play into him faking the moon landing necessarily or anything like that. Uh, but it does show that he, for one, was brazen enough to expose things like this because... You know, you don't want to mess with the government when they're doing black budget projects. Um, you can get yourself killed for that. In fact, when we get into theories about what happened at his death, that's going to come into play. But it shows that he was willing to expose things like this. So if he had faked the moon landing, maybe he did put some little uh, tidbits out there later on. Or if he was part of these secret societies that do not, you know tell the public their their plans and how their inner workings work maybe he was brazen enough to make a movie about it and either way even if neither of those are the case if he was dropping hints as to where these black sites were doing these programs all the way back in 1971 where these uh, 
programs were just freshly being done, it shows that he had a pretty good knowledge and some pretty good sources of these things and how they happened and how they worked and where they were happening. Now, the author of that book had witnessed these things because he was part of the British intelligence, so he could have been one of his sources and obviously was one of his sources, but it shows that he was very well connected and, uh, and it's a pretty interesting tidbit about him and about that movie. If you've never seen that movie, watch it because it's interesting and it shows kind of how MKUltra worked, or at least an aspect of MKUltra. It was a huge program. Uh, but watch it with caution, not around your kids, because it is fucked up. It's a really messed up movie and it's pretty disgusting in a lot of parts. It's a bit of the old ultra violence. Uh, so be careful when you're watching it. So obviously Stanley Kubrick made other movies. He made a good handful of them, he made 13 of them, um, including Full Metal Jacket, which if you've never seen that, is an amazing movie. Um, you know, it's touted as one of the best movies of all time, like a lot of his movies are. And it's about the military. It's not a war movie at all. It's much more about um, the dangers of putting somebody with mental instabilities into dangerous situations, and it's a really kind of messed up movie. But it is a great movie, but it, again, shows his uh, propensity to expose the darker side of things. And that takes us to his very last movie, Eyes Wide Shut. And we're going to dive a little deeper into this one again because this gets more into the occult side of things and back into the Masonic side of things. So Eyes Wide Shut came out in 1999, and it has Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as the starring characters in it, and it is about cults. I mean, it's about the Masonic Lodge and sexual ritual, pretty much. Now, it was based on a book called Tromneville, or Dream Story, that was written in 1926, and there's obviously other themes about it, and you could say that this movie is about the struggles of a relationship and uh, fighting through monogamy and sexual exploration. You could say a lot of different things, and maybe that's the case. And we'll get into what Stanley Kubrick actually says about this later on. But we can't ignore how he made this movie. This movie is like the ultimate expose into the ritualistic and the Masonic worlds, and it is just riddled with symbology, and not even just symbology, it's blatantly in your face. So essentially the plot of Eyes Wide Shut is that Tom Cruise's character and his wife are not really necessarily having problems, but she's like telling him that she's having dreams about having sex with another man, and he... Uh, keeps getting hit on and like kind of questioning having sex with other people. It's very sexually charged, obviously, that's the whole movie. And then he meets this man and he goes to this mansion where there's all these people and they're doing this essentially ritualistic orgy where everybody's wearing these masks and it's this like very provocative and and esoteric ritual that's going on around the sex while well, somebody there recognizes that he isn't part of the group essentially and comes over and unmasks him and they're going to make him pay for it probably kill him and this lady comes up and says no don't do that, you know, I'll take the blame, put it on me, essentially. And he leaves and then later finds out that that lady has died and that supposedly there's like an overdose thing going on, but essentially it kind of sounds like maybe she was murdered. And there's some other things that happen, like a child gets sold into sex slavery um, and a, a bunch of 
bunch of things that uh, sound very conspiratorial when we talk about them in the real world and then come out every day that they're actually happening. So that's obviously a very brief overview of that movie, um, but we're going to get into the strange stuff around it. So for one thing, this movie aired for the first screening six days before Stanley Kubrick died in his sleep. And we're going to talk about that at the end of this. But the theory around this is that Kubrick was either in these secret societies or at least had a working knowledge of these secret societies. And the kind of the culmination of his work is he went and made this expose of it and showed what these people do and they killed him for it. Now, we're going to talk about whether he died naturally or, or he was murdered and all sorts of stuff later, but let's get into this movie a little bit more. So first of all, Stanley Kubrick, like I said, really would put himself into his work and really uh, dedicate a lot of time for it. And he took a very long time. It took years to make this movie. And he actually had the actors sign an agreement saying that there was no time limit on this movie. He could take as long as he wants to make it, which, as far as I'm concerned, isn't really usually how movies work. So he obviously had big plans for this, and it was very important to him to get it right and do it the way that he wanted it done. So like I said, this movie is just uh, like a playbook of what happens in, you know, cult societies and, and uh, secret societies. So let's go through some of the weird things in the movie. Well, I mean, not weird, very blatant things in the movie that you see. So the whole movie kind of bases around, you know, sexual secret societies and high-class sex slaves and mind-controlled sex slaves and rituals, which is something that people have been talking about on the conspiracy side of things that these elite societies do for years. And more and more, it comes out all the time that these things are actually happening. We know that with the whole Epstein thing that happened, that these things do take place. These elite people with a whole lot of money do disgusting things. They kidnap children, they use them for disgusting reasons, they sell them, and uh, we also know that there's mind control that goes along with a lot of these things, like in the MK Ultra programs, and that these things do take place. So it seems that Stanley Kubrick might have been letting the world know about these things. And one example of uh, things that you see in the movie is the Masonic symbols that are just everywhere in the movie. So at one point, one of the characters, Alice, who's Nicole Kidman, is undressing and getting ready for bed. And when she does it, she's standing between these two large pillars. Remember the large pillars that I was talking about at the uh, end of the 2001 Space Odyssey? Well, these large pillars are Masonic pillars. They're called Boaz and Zakin. There's also appearances throughout the movie of a Masonic symbol known as the Star of Ishtar, which is very important. And again, when I get into the secret societies and more into Freemasonry, we'll talk more about what these things mean. But just know for now that they are very symbolic and they are secret symbols of these secret societies that people aren't supposed to necessarily recognize, especially uh, back in the late 90s. Nowadays, people are talk about these a lot more, and it just gets seen as a conspiracy theory, but they're all over the place. Um, but Stanley Kubrick obviously had a, a bit of a knowledge about these things. There's also a very obvious part in the movie where he's blatantly showing us these things, where Dr. Bill, a character in the movie, is standing in the main hall in front of the cult leader, and the leader sits on a throne that contains a two-headed eagle on the back of it. Well, the two-headed eagle is the primary emblem of the 
33 degree Scottish Rite Freemasons, which is like the most powerful Masonic organization in the world. And the 33rd degree is the highest degree of Freemasonry. So that that's not even, he wasn't even trying to like hide anything there. He was showing that these are Masons that are doing this in this movie. I'm showing you the Masons. So, I mean, with that part alone, I mean, we could just stop right there. He just <laughs> he just very blatantly showed that this movie is about the Masonic Lodges and this movie is about what happens with the Freemasons and the things that they do. So that kind of clears a lot of things up, but there's more clues in here and there's more stuff to it. So let's keep going. Several of the main character women in this movie um, and the women around the main character, the main main character, um have scarlet hair and that's very important because of the scarlet woman so again we'll get way more into this when we get into uh occult stuff but the scarlet woman is a huge part of occult ritual and it's essentially without going too deep in all this essentially it's the woman who's going to bring about the antichrist through ritualistic magic and has been used by Aleister Crowley and all these different people through sex magic to supposedly bring about the antichrist and bring about the new world and this new world order that they want to bring into humanity with the new man like we were talking about with 2001 a space odyssey now, if that just sounds like crazy conspiracy theory to you and you start hearing the world New World Order and you're like, okay, he's going off the deep end. Remember, you don't have to believe these things because the people that run the world believe these things and these things actually do happen. And I will do an episode or probably a whole bunch of episodes about these. And when I start telling you about the documented and very blatant and open cases of the Bush family and of the Clintons and of the Rothschilds and all these big name families that literally own and rule the world and how they're all connected and the, most of them are actually related and how they've been doing this for a very long time. It's not, it's not a conspiracy theory. These people use these rituals for very specific purposes. To them, it is a religion. And like I was saying at the very beginning, kind of explaining how these people think about this um, sun worship, not really being sun worship, it's worshiping the intellect that we were given as a gift from the serpent and us being able to become gods and become the new man. They're trying to create the new world order, the new man to run this new utopian society that they want for everybody where they're on top and you don't own anything and money doesn't exist and you're the cattle. And I know that that sounds crazy, but this is happening. This is real. This is true. Like I said, I'm like 20 hours into a 40 hour uh, talk lecture just on this stuff and I've learned hundreds and hundreds of hours of stuff about it outside of that one uh, that one program that I'm listening to right now but it's it's very blatant it's very in our face and it's definitely happening as we speak right now it's not a it's not uh, some out there bullshit it's it is happening but anyway looks like Stanley Kubrick was trying to tell us about this and may or may not have gotten killed for it just like by the way William Cooper the guy that I was talking about that uh, is doing or did the show that I'm listening to called Mystery Babylon he got killed right after he said that the U.S. was going to stage a big attack and then blame it on Osama bin Laden so that we could go to war with the east and then two months later 9-11 happened and like two weeks later they showed up at his house and a bunch of sheriffs just went and shot him up so when people start getting too close and, and enough people start listening to things about this uh you know it 
<laughs> they get stopped. And there's a reason for that because it puts a kink in people's plans who have a lot of power and a lot of money. So we'll talk in a minute about the death of Stanley Kubrick six days after this movie aired. So if you think this stuff is all just crazy conspiracy theory, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're not looking deep enough. So on that note of, you know, famous and powerful people being involved in this kind of thing, let's talk about the Rothschilds for a second. So if you don't know who the Rothschilds are, they're one of the families that run the world. They're some of the most powerful and rich people in the world, and they pretty much run uh, the banking system. We'll just say that about them. We'll get into more of them at another time. But photos have been leaked online of a 1972, so kind of older photos, party that was held at the Chateau de Ferreris. I don't know how to pronounce that, but at this big mansion that's owned by the Rothschilds. Well, guess what? This mansion looks exactly like the mansion in the movie where the main character goes and witnesses this big sex party. But it doesn't stop there. So these photos that were leaked of this 1972 party by the Rothschilds shows, you know, what was going on at the party. And there was all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Everybody was wearing these masks, like in the movie. Everything from animal heads to pretend cages were all over the place. Um, there was dismembered dolls and broken children's toys purposely scattered all over on the tables. Sounds pretty sadistic. Some of the tables even had naked mannequins on top of them, or naked mannequins, and it was like they were laid out on in a coffin with food on top and served on top of them. This is something that is not just fun art. This is something that we see all over the place in a lot of things all the time nowadays because things are getting more and more brazen and more and more public. There was just a thing with, I think it was, uh, who's that singer? Uh, Lady Gaga going to one of these parties where they have somebody with this red syrup drizzled all over them and it looks like they're bloody and they're naked and then you eat food off of them. And we had that whole, what was it, Bellagio thing going on with this big, I think it was called Bellagio, but this big um, fashion company having all this symbology and all these children doing disgusting things and being... Um, tied and and these these broken children and all of their their advertisements for their clothes lines and just all these things that kind of tie into it but it looks like this this movie was based on this party from 1972 or at least that's where he got the idea of the mansion and how this party would look so i wouldn't be surprised if he was at that party for one thing but people who went to this ball said that the house was bathed in this deep red glow and it looked like the house was on fire, like they had it all lit up red. So, you know, you hear these things, you can be like, oh, rich people are just doing crazy stuff. But first of all, we could say that was the case if it didn't happen repetitively because we see these things happen over and over and over and over again at these rich and powerful people's parties and they always have the same theme these dead people being eaten off of, these women being eaten off of and being sacrificed, and these kids' toys and this abuse of children in all these different ways, and it's, it's perverted, it's disgusting. But when you get down to understanding what it all means, it's ritualistic, and there's a reason behind all of it, and that's what Stanley Kubrick was showing, whether he was exposing it because he had been a part of this and made the movie 2001 Space Odyssey and then regretted it later in his life and decided he would kind of show people and speak out against it, 
or he had just gathered the information to make it. Either way, he was definitely showing what goes on at these at these events, at these parties that these rich people hold all the time. And this is uh, blatant. It's brazen. It's documented. This isn't conspiracy. If you look at, you know, it's getting so brazen nowadays that it's in music videos and at the Super Bowl and on all these different things where it's just everything's satanic. It's very, very satanic. And you can, you know, people who say that this is just conspiracy theory look at it and they're like, you know, you're reaching at straws here. But why is it that every single one of them make the same hand figure or hand gesture or cover the same eye or you have the exact same symbolism um, in all their album covers? Every single one has the checkered white and black square floor. You know, when you see the same thing over and over and over, it's not that they're just being goofy. There's a reason behind it. It's symbology. Symbology is very important to us as humans and it's very important to these secret societies and I'll, I'll get into all that more um, when we get into the, the secret society stuff. But it seems as though, again, uh, Stanley Kubrick was showing what happens at these secret society parties, and specifically with the Rothschilds. I mean, even the name of the movie, Eyes Wide Shut, like, what does that mean? You have to think about why things are the way that they are. Nothing happens on accident. There's no such thing as coincidence, in, in my opinion. But the eyes wide shut, like people are blatantly and um, purposefully, you know, closing their eyes to this stuff going on around them. And, you know, people say that his title, Eyes Wide Shut, is referring to the people in Hollywood because this happens in Hollywood, as we see all the time and comes out all the time in these documents with the Epstein flight lists and all the people connected to these disgusting things that happen um, and finally get made public, even though it just gets blown under the water. Nobody gives a shit about it as soon as they hear about it. But um, supposedly his title of Eyes Wide Shut is referring to the people in Hollywood who are a part of all this stuff and just choose to not speak out about it and not do anything about it. And he's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to make this movie about it. So there's, I mean, the whole movie is symbology. The whole movie is just blatant. So I could go through every little piece of it and every little statue that they have in there and everything and tell you how it links back to, you know, all these secret societies. Uh, but just watch the movie. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> there's no secret that it's about secret societies. The only question is, you know, is it just something that he made up or do these things happen in real life? And it's not a question anymore. For one thing, um, we know that it happens in real life because we have things like Epstein and the Epstein flight list and Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, even connections with the royal family and the supposed and most likely murder of Princess Diana because she was about to talk out about these things. And we have all this evidence that's come to light because of the internet age and because people can access these things nowadays. And unfortunately, they don't get talked about enough and it just, you know, gets covered up with other news stories because the people who do these things and own the world and have all the money don't want you talking about it because they're all involved in it. Well, maybe not all of them, but most of them are involved in it. But um, you know, it, these, these things are happening and do happen. So that's not a question at all. The question is getting back to the whole episode that we're doing. How does Stanley Kubrick know about it? How did he know about it back in the nineties before he could Google things off his phone and what happened to him after that? So, like I said, 
this was Stanley Kubrick's very last movie. And the reason for that is six days after the first screening of it, he didn't wake up. Now, the official story is that he had a heart attack. I mean, not only if he did, he had a heart attack (laughs) and he didn't wake up. The question is what caused that heart attack. So there's interviews with um, Stanley Kubrick's wife and one of his good friends who say that he was in great health before that night when he didn't wake up the next morning. And he had been sick a little earlier, like a couple weeks earlier than that, but it was nothing serious and he had gotten over that. Um, And his friend that had talked to him on the phone that night said that he was just, he was talking about football, you know, it was was his normal kind of cheery self, nothing kind of out of the, out of the ordinary. Now, heart attacks can just happen randomly. They can happen to everybody, but they're also easy to induce. And there's a lot of times that we know that they have been used in assassinations. And, um, you know, the question is, is that what happened to Mr. Kubrick? Now, that we're not going to get a definitive answer on that because the official story is that he had a heart attack. The autopsy was done. He had a heart attack, bury him, cremate him, whatever they did. He's 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 done for. So there's no way to know for sure. All we can do is look at all the strange facts around everything. So there is a theory that there was an extra like 24 minutes of footage in that movie that was seen in the first time. But after he died, they cut that out of the movie and because it, it exposed too much and it was things that they didn't want seen. I don't know if that's true. I don't know where you'd find those extra 24 minutes of footage. His friends and the other producers and stuff on the movie say that that is not true. Say that the movie is as close to as what he wanted as as it could be and that it was completely done and made by the time he died and that they just, you know, finished up the soundtrack and stuff like that to it but that there was nothing really taken away or added to the movie and it was his his vision for the movie. So there may have been some changes made after he died. I can't find any evidence that that did happen. Um, In my opinion, I don't think it really matters because if he was killed for the movie coming out and for what he did, whether or not there was extra footage or not doesn't really change the fact of whether or not that happened. So what does all of this leave us with? Well, kind of a couple different uh, ideas, a couple different theories here. One, we can take the conspiracy side of things, if you want to call it that, and what I kind of think is happening here is that we had a man who became a very good filmmaker, very young, and then probably got recruited and indoctrinated into these secret societies that are very powerful and made a lot of connections, and then he made 2001 A Space Odyssey, which became his like big magnum opus at the time, and in that he showed the kind of inner workings of it, and you know, Bill Cooper's idea is that he wasn't trying to expose it that that was like he made it for the other members of the society and he was like making that for them and showing them hey look at look at what's happening and look how we're all going to progress to this new man so it was kind of like a movie that he made for the other members of it um and then from there he goes on to make clockwork orange and expose the cia and then after that you know he may or may not have helped fake the moon landing and then uh, left little pieces of that in another movie, and then goes on to, at the end of his life, 
deciding when he's 70 years old, deciding that, you know, maybe I should expose these people and show the truth about what's really going on. And he does it and they kill him for it. So there's that side of it. If we just take all the conspiracies and all the weird stuff around him and wrap it into one, that's the storyline. We could also kind of stick along those lines and then say that he was part of these fraternal organizations, part of these Masonic lodges and stuff, but he was doing it with their permission and that they wanted to do what I was saying earlier, where if we say it and show it to people, then they're making a choice to let us do this to them. And that relieves the, uh, the fault off our back, essentially. And so he was doing it under their orders. And then he was either killed for another reason, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or he just died of natural causes coincidentally six days after this came out. And then uh, the last option, of course, is that it's just all coincidence. Like none of this really makes any sense. None of this actually adds up. I'm fucking crazy. The people who look into this stuff are crazy. The world's just one big happy ball of smiles and nobody is nefarious and there's no such thing as secret societies. Um, I obviously don't believe that, but that's what the narrative is, is that people who believe in this kind of thing that's blatantly in your face all day, every day, and shove down yours and your kids' throats is just a bunch of bullshit and it's just rich people having fun. Um, don't mind the fact that they own everything and, and rule the world and have sex parties where they ritualistically uh, do mock murders and things like that. But there is that there is that possibility that just all this is bullshit and, and people like me are crazy. And then we have the idea that he wasn't part of these secret societies, that he knew about them because he ran in the same circles that he was, you know, in uh, Hollywood. So he knew of them and he was probably somebody who they prospected to uh, get into their, their fraternal organizations, but maybe he denied them. And then because of that, he kind of made it his life's work to expose them. And so he dropped all these hints in all of his movies, 2001, A Space Odyssey, he was exposing the uh, Masonic order and how they think about people. And then in the Clockwork Orange, he was exposing the CIA and their mind control programs. And then he was exposing the moon landing. And then he was exposing the Rothschilds. And he was actually a really good guy. He wasn't on the bad guy's side. If you want to do the good guy, bad guy thing. Um, but they finally ended up killing him for it at the end of it. And then there's the most likely scenario that nothing's ever completely black or white and we're not on either extreme and that it's kind of a little bit of everything. He may have known some things about these secret societies. He may not have. You know, some of the conspiracy theories around him may or may not be true. He may or may not have been murdered. You know, some of the stuff is true and some of it's not. So the truth lies somewhere in the varying degrees in between those two uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there of him either being fully into this or this not existing it's probably somewhere in the mix there but let's look at what he himself had to say about some things real quick before we wrap this up so when you look into stanley kubrick's political and religious beliefs i'm just going to go through a couple of them here and we can kind of think kind of try to decide how we think he thought right again i can't talk to him because he's dead but there's a memoir of Kubrick written by Michael Hare, who was a friend and the co-writer of the screenplay for Full Metal Jacket. And he says that Stanley had views on everything, right? Like everybody does. 
and he says he wouldn't exactly call him political. His views on democracy were those, he said his views on democracy was that it was a noble failed experiment along our evolutionary way, brought on by low and base instincts, money and self-interest and stupidity. He thought that the best system might be under a benign despot, but he had little belief that such a man could be found. Which, you know, kind of lines up with this thinking of the Freemasons, supposedly, is that they think people need to be controlled, that democracy doesn't really work. We need a ruling class who knows what's best for everybody, and everybody else can kind of be the cattle underneath it um, and, and support the system. It sounds like that's kind of how he believed, at least according to that man. I can't claim 100% what, this, what Stanley Kubrick believed, of course. And then we have Frederick Raphael, who co-wrote Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick. And he claims that Stanley Kubrick once said, Adolf Hitler had been right about almost everything. Which is pretty interesting considering the fact that Stanley Kubrick was Jewish. Although once we get into his um, religious stuff, we'll see that he says that he was not really a Jew. He just happened to have two Jewish parents. So he was he was Jewish by um, ethnicity, but not by religion in, in any way, it sounds like. But saying that Hitler was right about almost everything, either he was making a messed up joke, or he obviously didn't believe in the genocide of his people part of it, but thought that, again, a socialist order underneath a ruling class and using genetics and using all these different things to make the world this perfect utopia in their eyes, not saying that this is what I believe, um, but is the right path. And when I get into secret societies, the Nazi party was part of these secret societies. They Their beliefs were the exact same thing. They were the biggest armed force of it, essentially. Um, and they almost won except for democracy in America, and not just America, I shouldn't say that, but the, the other parts of the world um, fought it off. And hopefully we can continue to do that because it seems like uh, we're, we're losing this time around. But anyway, again, it kind of shows his political beliefs line up a lot with what Freemasonry believes. Stanley Kubrick also is quoted as saying, man isn't a noble savage, he's an innoble savage. He is irrational, brutal, weak, silly, unable to be objective about anything where his own interests are involved. And that about sums it up. I'm interested in the brutal and violent nature of man because it's a true picture of him. And any attempt to create social institutions on false view of the nature of man is probably doomed to failure. Again, going back to the same ideals that man is weak and needs to be controlled by a highly evolved man. Which you can agree with that or not. I mean, there is parts of that I definitely agree with, but not when it comes to, uh, you know, taking it to the aspect of, of secret societies and stuff like that. He also said, when talking about the movie A Clockwork Orange, the idea that social restraints are all bad is based on a utopian and unrealistic vision of man. But in this movie, you have an example of social institutions gone a bit berserk. Obviously, social institutions faced with law and order problem might choose to become grotesquely oppressive. The movie poses two extremes. It shows Alex in his pre-civilized state and society committing a worse evil in attempting to cure him. But then we also have a time when he was asked by a reporter if he was an anarchist. And he told the reporter, I am certainly not an anarchist, and I don't think of myself as a pessimist. I believe very strongly in parliamentary democracy, 
and I am of the opinion that the power and authority of the state should be optimized and exercised only to the extent that is required to keep things civilized. So it sounds to me like he was just a realist and, you know, people called him a bit of a pessimist, but I think he just understood that man by nature are very violent and, and do have a lot of flaws. Now, him, his political beliefs don't necessarily really matter when it comes to whether or not he was part of the uh, secret societies, because for one thing, um, you know, they don't discriminate. Any religion, race, creed, color is allowed into the secret societies. In fact, they want that. They want to infiltrate all sorts of different um, things. And a lot of the times, in a lot of the writings of things like the Freemasons and, and these other societies that are out there, they say that they will directly contradict each other purposefully through different organizations. So the the Rosicrucians and the uh, Skull and Bones and the Illuminati and all these different secret societies out there will contradict each other with political beliefs and supposed religious beliefs because for one, it makes it hard to track who is actually doing this. But for two, if you do that, you can grab people from all walks of life into your organization and not discriminate against who you have uh, building towards the same goal. So it doesn't necessarily um, put him into the realm of being a part of these fraternal orders or not being by his political views. I just wanted to give you a bit of a look into the mind of the man who um, has made these movies. So let's get into his religious ideas a little bit and around the 2001 A Space Odyssey movie. So like I said, he you know claimed from time to time that he was Jewish only in the fact that he had Jewish parents. And when he was asked if he had a religious upbringing, he said no, not at all. So he claimed to not be religious in the traditional sense. He said in an interview when he was talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2001 would give you a little insight into my metaphysical interest. I'd be very surprised if the universe wasn't full of an intelligence of an order that to us would seem godlike. I find it very exciting to have have a semi-logical belief that there's a great deal to the universe we don't understand and that there is an intelligence of an incredible magnitude outside of the earth. It's something I've become more and more interested in. I find it a very exciting and satisfying hope. He also said in another interview about 2001 A Space Odyssey when asked if it was about God and God was behind the events of 2001, like putting the, the obelisk there, he says the whole idea of God is absurd. If anything, 2001 shows that some people call God is simply an acceptable term for their ignorance. What they don't understand, they call God. Everything we know about the universe re reveals that there is no God. I choose to do Dr. Arthur C. Clarke's story as a film because it highlights a critical factor necessary for human evolution, that is, beyond our current condition. This film is a rejection of the notion that there is a God. Isn't that obvious? Which, again, sounds very much to me like the supposed thinking of these um, ancient secret Babylonian societies that God is not a thing or a person that's up there. There's an ancient source of the universe that everything comes from, but there's no like direct God and that everything is more symbolic. And again, nothing that I'm reading you right now about his own personal thoughts of religion and of politics disqualify or qualify him for being part of these secret societies. Um, just giving you a little more insight into his mind. 
There's one more interview on here, but it's he gave a pretty long response to it where he's talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, and he did this one for Playboy magazine a long time ago. And he was saying, essentially what he says is that you know, the universe is billions and hundreds of billions of years old, and there's a very high chance that there's a lot of places out there that can sustain life and that are much older than us, and they probably have a much more advanced technology. And he says, when you think of giant technological strides that man has made in a few millennia, less than a microsecond of the chronological chronology of the universe, can you imagine the evolutionary development that much older life forms may have taken? They may have progressed from biological species, which are fragile shells for the mind at best, into immortal machine entities, and then over innumerable eons, they could emerge from the chrysalis of matter transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. Their potentialities would be limitless and their intelligence unsurpassable by humans. So he obviously isn't outside of the realm of thinking about things largely, <laughs> you know, obviously he had a very brilliant mind and um, liked the idea that there is much more powerful entities out there than us, but he didn't believe in a singular creator god out there. Um, it, it seems to me like he believed in the evolutionary idea of the universe and that intelligence and everything evolves evolutionarily. He talks about in one of his interviews when he's talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey and he's talking about the obelisks um, that, you know, it's obviously in the movie brought down by another advanced civilization. That's what he was just talking about in that, that interview that I was reading from. But that kind of goes deeper into like the ancient astronaut theory and that the gods of the Bible and of ancient religions were actually beings from other planets who were just much more evolved than us. So maybe that's what he believed. And maybe he believed that the allegories and stories in the Bible and in the Garden of Eden and things like the Tree of Knowledge and this obelisk that he used were actually from a different species because that's what he says happens in that movie. And if, it, if that movie did, in fact... Uh, come out as him showing the secrets of the secret societies maybe that's what he was alluding to is that um, you know we were we were given this divine knowledge from a separate species and you know the god Yahweh of the Bible and Lucifer are just these beings from other planets that's a bit of conjecture on my part I can't say you know that he he absolutely thought that way but it, it seems to seems to add up with what he says about how his ideas on things. So that's just kind of a little peek into his mind about the man who's behind all this. You know, the whole uh, this whole episode is about is Stanley Kubrick a Freemason or was he a Freemason and was he killed for exposing them? And you know, I've given you all the evidence that I've found in the last. 24 hours because I just really jumped into this because that's, that's how I do things, just obsess about things. Um, I was actually going to do a different episode until I watched that movie two days ago. But you'll have to draw your own conclusions on whether or not you think that he was because there's no definitive proof whether he was part of these societies or not or whether he just had working knowledge of them and maybe had an inside look and then tried to expose them or, you know, which theory it is that you want to go with. And there's also no definitive proof of whether or not he just happened to die six days before he made the first movie exposing all of these secret elite sex 
rings and sex trafficking things that go on or you know if he was murdered for it like i said earlier in my opinion he had to have some sort of inside track on it he either had to be a part of these things or he had to know people that were a part of them because there's too much symbology and there's too many things um, that he did right that we know nowadays because of the internet and because of mass uh, communication and we're able to look into these things a lot easier and a lot more readily we know that these things happen and we know how they work much better now and in the 60s you could not know that unless you were either part of it or you dedicated your entire life to learning about it which means you were probably part of it or you were fighting against it so he had that kind of knowledge which means he was associated with it in some way and that's as far as i can guarantee you i can't guarantee anything outside of that i can in my mind, I can make my guarantee that it was not just all coincidence. There's just, I don't see how that could have happened. Um, you can disagree with me on that. You're welcome to email me and tell me why you disagree. Of course, your whole argument's going to be that it's just coincidence. So I don't know what kind of argument you can make for that. Uh, but of course, I'll also have a Q&A at the bottom of the episode on the Spotify app that you can, you can tell me your thoughts on there as well. All right, guys. Well, I hope that this was an enjoyable episode, and I hope that you learned a lot. I know that I took a lot of tangents going down um, the road of, of Freemasonry and things like that. I was trying to keep it as digestible for people who don't know anything about secret societies as possible. And if there was things in there that didn't really make sense to you or didn't add up, just wait, because like I said, eventually I will I will do episodes about um, about secret societies and then explain how all that works and why the symbolism is so important and what it all means. Or, you know, like like you should do, look it up yourself. Look into these things because they really do affect our world every single day and the people in power believe them even if you don't and uh, they use them. So understanding how our world works and how the people that literally control you work I think is is a pretty important thing to do. So look into it to yourself. Please, if you have any questions about this and you want me to clarify things or, or just want to chat about it, you can always reach out to me at Luke at StolenReality.com. And if you just think it's all crap, you think this is all bullshit, tell me why. I would love to hear the other side of things. Like I'd say all the time, I don't guarantee to be right about anything. All I can do is show you the stuff that I've found, that I've learned, that I know from years and years and years and years and years of being obsessed with this stuff and looking into it and and uh, plotting it all together. So I'm not always going to be right. But I'm usually going to be right. But uh, if you find things that don't add up and stuff, tell me why. Because I'm always open to learning more. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And I hope you're having a great week. And I will be back on Friday for a bit of sode. And remember to tell your friends about the show. And reach out to me and tell me whether or not you think Stanley Kubrick was part of a secret society. Alright guys, have a great rest of your week. You'll be hearing from me on Friday. Thank you.